Welcome to the Turd Nerds. We are the functional gastroenterology podcast discussing all things poop. Before we take the plunge into today's episode, let us tell you a bit about ourselves. I'm Dr. Rebecca Sand, a naturopathic physician and acupuncturist, and I specialize in all things gastroenterology, hormones, and fertility. I'm Dr. Ami Kapadia, and I'm a medical doctor trained in family medicine and functional medicine with a special interest in gastrointestinal health, food and environmental allergies, and autoimmune disease. And I'm Dr. Alana Gurvich, a naturopathic physician and acupuncturist who is board certified in naturopathic gastroenterology. I specialize in inflammatory bowel disease, IBS, and other functional digestive disorders. Let's jump into today's episode. The following discussion is for educational purposes only and not intended to diagnose or treat any diseases or conditions. Please consult your doctor before incorporating any of this information into your care. The information presented on this podcast is not medical advice. Okay, we are back for a part two on fatigue. We are going to do a deeper dive into other treatment strategies, um, interventions that you can do with your patients, things to look for. We're going to touch on some mitochondria. I can't wait. Let's dive in. So next, I wanted to talk about some sort of comorbid medical conditions that you want to think about if someone's having fatigue. So obviously, mood disorder, so depression, anxiety can mm-hmm. contribute to fatigue. Of course, we think of depression, but anxiety too, if you're, you know, I didn't really make this connection also till the last couple of years until I was studying more sort of brain retraining programs, but you can make yourself physically tired from worrying. So Been there. It, yep, it's, a, <laughs> it's important, even if you're physically not actually tired, uh, it's, I know it's shocking, everything's connected, so we can make ourselves tired with our thought pattern. So just something to think about when someone who has anxiety Anxiety uses so much brain energy. energy. Yeah, cortisol. So, oh my it's god, just like you're living on cortisol. Yeah, unfortunately. yeah. It's, it's really it's it's an awful thing to deal with. Yeah, and then other things, of course, you know, sleep apnea. We think about mm-hmm. so when you do your sleep history, asking about snoring. Does their um, does their spouse notice that they're stop having you know apneic episodes in the night? Um, you can have sleep apnea even if you don't meet some of the old questionnaire sort of the old stop bang type questionnaires that we would do there's a whole whole spectrum of conditions including upper airway resistance syndrome where actually thin females can have it um, and it has to do more with the airway than sort of different criteria than what we think of as a typical person with sleep apnea sinus passages i i had a sleep study because um, of my small sinuses and i learned from that sleep medicine doctor that there's a correlation with pcos Interesting. Oh, Something wow. like six to times more likely to have sleep apnea if you have PCOS. Spoiler alert, PCOS <laughs> episode coming in the future. 20 part oh, series. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, I also, I what is in, important to know is honestly thin women. Like yep. that is, it it's was so surprising. It's framed women. Yeah. It, it's, yeah, it's, it's female bodies that have smaller frames. It's not necessarily body weight associated. I have uh, these patients that are siblings and none of them fit the characteristic of having sleep apnea mm-hmm. and all of them had terrible fatigue and I did all of the things. And then it turned out that it was an upper, upper airway respiratory disorder. Yeah. So restrictive versus obstructive. Yeah. Yeah. So, so if someone if someone grinds their teeth, is a mouth breather, yeah. tends to have like a smaller oropharyngeal passage wake, s- yeah. smaller sinuses, like Rebecca said, maybe consider a sleep study, even though they are not fun to do, to see. And you want to make sure that the sleep specialist you're sending to 
is testing for UARS and not just sleep apnea because not everyone does. The important thing to know about sleep studies is the at-home study is significantly less sensitive than the in-person. But you have to do it because of insurance and then they'll set you up with the in-house one, which is equally annoying. (laughs) Probably more annoying, honestly, to be honest. They were both bad. Were they? I think they've made the at-home ones with like, I I describe it as like a metal octopus you're going to be sleeping with. With the at-home one? Uh Uh-huh. But I think since then they've made it where fewer things are hooked to you. Yeah. I think I had a nurse once explain it to me as like spaghetti. There's just spaghetti yeah. coming out of all yeah, your yeah, orifices. Yeah, yeah. yeah that, so you're not going to sleep one. great anyway, but no. somehow they can get enough data to tell us what's going on. They give you on. drugs. They yeah. offer you drugs for it. <laughs> oh, do they? Drugs for everything. Yep. Oh. And Welcome I, to America. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't know ex- how much of an effect that has on the outcome, but obviously they, they can none. interpret the results still. Yeah. So. Yep. And then other concurrent conditions like autoimmune diseases, mm-hmm. heart disease, lung disease, those types of things can contribute to fatigue, of course. Um, and then lab workup. I think we all do pretty much the standard workup thyroid, comprehensive metabolic panel, CBC, B12, ferritin, vitamin D, if it's covered. So maybe we should dive into nutritional deficiencies. Yeah, we could do that. Mm-hmm. And then the last part of the, the lab workup I'll mention is just, um, I always check the anti-gliadin antibodies, and I think you two do as well a lot of times, um, just because we've had patients that just had fatigue as their main presenting symptom when they're having totally. like a, a celiac-type presentation. I will say that a lot of my chief complaints are fatigue and mm-hmm. some kind of GI thing because it's my practice. Right. But nutritional deficiencies, especially in the context of autoimmune disease, especially in the context of GI-based autoimmune diseases mm-hmm. like inflammatory bowel disease, right. even microscopic colitis because they're having such increased transit time. You know, small intestine is still functioning, yeah. but large intestine is everything's going right through them, can absolutely present with nutritional deficiencies. Yeah. And then, so that that's the autoimmune, but then there's also the functional GI disorders that will also have mineral nutrient deficiencies because again things are going through them very quickly or the enzymes aren't working properly yeah if small bowel is compromised for whatever reason the enterocytes aren't healthy they're not absorb well so i think that's why some of our patients have had amazing results when we send them for iv nutrients whereas others feel no different so that can kind of help with diagnosing whether it's a nutrient related fatigue and i again you said it but a shout out to ferritin like check your patient's ferritin especially if they have a regular menstrual cycle right or have recently hemorrhaged because of miscarriage or something like that that i find low all the time and i think it makes us look magic because we fix it and they feel amazing low is so difficult to pinpoint though in my experience yeah because depending on what data set you're looking at low has very different definitions if you're looking at some data sets they're going to say a ferritin under 10 is low but i've also seen data that says that to optimize for fatigue and energy, we're looking to optimize our ferritin to 100. I The data I read was the one or two studies in women who are menstruating to get the ferritin to at least 50 helped with fatigue. Yeah. And you can have too much iron. So I typically aim for around the... I have a hard time believing that their fatigue is from iron deficiency if their ferritin is in the 40 to 50-ish range. Not to say some people don't feel better when it's even higher. So, of course, you could try IV iron infusions, which we've done for many people. I would say it's been, I would say, 75% of my patients felt their energy was improved. And then I have this percentage of patients, probably a quarter or so, where their energy was not related to repleting their iron. I see it clinically. I see the cutoff be 30 for most people, like if they're under 30, it's making them tired. If I can get it over 30, even if it's like 45, which isn't optimal yeah. for different organ systems and whatever. It's probably good enough for energy. Feel better. Yeah. Yeah. The problem is that let's say 
it is iron and it's under 30, mm-hmm. but they can't get an infusion because of cost, because they're not too right. low for insurance yep. companies to cover it. Yep. It's, I mean, it's an expensive, like, I think going rate is somewhere between four to 600 if you're in a outpatient practice. If you're in the hospital, we're talking 700 to 1,000 per right. infusion. Easily. Easily. Uh, and so the problem with that is supplementing with ferrous gluconate or ferrous sulfate, which I think- Hard to tolerate. Hard, it will get the numbers up. In my clinical experience, ferrous gluconate and ferrous sulfate will get the numbers up, but they can't tolerate because of constipation. Yeah. Yeah, especially I took ferrous sulfate once and felt like someone punched me in the stomach. Because it just sat there for like... <laughs> and I don't know. Didn't no, it didn't. It just, it caused severe pain. And yeah. so I've had a hard time it prescribing work, it. It does though. For like it does guts see- of steel, it does work. And it does bring yes, up the I've number. definitely prescribed it to patients who had, they were like, yeah, I took it, no problem. And they did fine with yeah. it. But then in my other piece of experience is prescribing the ferrous citrate or the ferrous bisglycinate yeah. or some yeah. of the more bioavailable quote unquote irons do not bring the numbers up. I have I seen like them come so I give it, but I'm doing four pills every other day. Are they getting constipated? No. I haven't seen constipation with those. I have had to increase the the amount. I find if we've done enough other stuff, the ferritin will go up. And if we haven't, or they just have a long-term inflammatory bowel disease or something, I agree. Like, it just hasn't been... It hasn't been... Go- I have seen it work, but certainly not if people, 100%. If, if my patients can't get infusions or they don't want to get infusions or it's cost prohibitive or whatever, I'll say, like, let's let's try for, like, three to six months, oral iron, four pills every other day of iron bisglycinate with, you know, vitamin C or whatever to get it in. Don't take it with dairy. Don't take it with tannins. All of that. And I would say like half of people, I can get their number above 30. Why are you doing it every other day? It increases absorption. There's hmm. some data that there is, There that. was a data. Oh, that podcast that we all listen to. No, actually, I actually read the study. Oh. It kind of changed how people were dosing it. I just found I had difficulty with compliance. Yeah. To remember to take ba- it. Patients were not remembering. Totally. So what you're saying is I think most of the dosing on those pills are about hundred mil- uh, 25 milligrams yeah. per pill. Yeah. yeah. So you're going up to 100 milligrams. Depending on their levels and if I have questions about absorption for them. So if it, they don't have any gut issues whatsoever and I'm not worried about that, I'll do like two or three. But some people, I will do three or four pills. Yeah, I think I'm not going high enough. Well, I think the other challenge is we learned that iron's actually, it's not a good thing to give someone orally who has inflammatory bowel disease. Yes. Just for for other reasons. So it's tricky. Uh, Infusions would probably be the best in that population, Mm -hmm. right? Except for the cross-prohibitive. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then the other thing is the cofactors. In my experience, yeah. you need, uh, it the has to be C. on an empty stomach yeah. with vitamin C and with B vitamins. Because the thing that I do see quite often is if they can't, if the iron is within normal limits and the hemoglobin hematocrit are even kind of within normal limits, mm-hmm. you know, above they 12. They are and the iron's ferritin's yep. low. Hemoglobin yep. above 12, hematocrit above 37. Then, but the ferritin is still really low. Yeah. You need to remember your cofactors. That is where your B6, that, uh, that is where your B12... B6 and I think folate yep. help move it from circulation in the bloodstream into storage. So maybe that combination product that yeah. one of our companies makes is that's why it works well. Yeah, I think it it's has... got a bunch of a bunch of products yeah. that have it. Yep. Yeah, I'll often use that product that we're referencing and then add on straight iron bisglycinate with it. Oh. Yeah, so that I'm not quadrupling everything All the other else things. in there. And it's a little cheaper for patients. Which I think brings us to the next second most important nutrient when we're talking about fatigue, which is B12. Yeah. 
B12, so one of the things that Dr. Kapadia taught me was forever I was only running methylmalonic acids. A methylmalonic acid is a blood test that tells us how much the body is absorbing methyl B12, right? It's an absorption test. If the methylmalonic acid is very high, the absorption is quite poor of uh, B12, and you want to think about, you know, starting injections. If the methylmalonic acid is very low, then you want to think about either A, overmethylating, or getting good absorption. Mm -hmm. But it's an expensive test. Mm -hmm. Vitamin B12 is a very cheap test. Mm -hmm. And and I never used to do it until Dr. Kapadia talked to us, maybe on the podcast, maybe not, I don't know. And now what I'm seeing is it's a really good first line mm -hmm. screening test. Mm -hmm. Like, and right. I'm, I'm using uh, Dr. Kapadia's ranges, which is over, four, I want it over 400. Mm -hmm. I also don't get freaked out if it's flagged because I know it's not differentiating what they're taking orally or through the diet versus what they're actually absorbing. And so what I'll do is if their B12 is high, I'll follow up with a methylmalonic acid to see what's happening functionally. It's a good idea. Yeah. So the lab cut off is less than 400, but they even make note on the regular labs, less than, I'm sorry, less than 200 is deficiency, but less than 400 can cause symptoms in mm -hmm. some people. So we just, we definitely just try to replete if it's less than 400. I tell someone if it's above 400, but just barely, then it just gives me clues about their absorption. But I would say in 50%-ish of my patients, it's in the less than 400 range. Mm -hmm. So I, I, think I find I would it agree. to be quite helpful. And then you can easily follow it as well. Yeah, I find it to be really diet correlated with people, people who don't eat animal products, obviously, but sometimes I can just bulk it up in diet and people do just fine if they're willing to, hmm. or I'll just do like one round of a yeah. B12 supplement and they're good to go. And then we should throw in the whole, you know, B12, methyl B12 shots, which, you yeah. know, it's not necessary to do shots. You can overcome pretty much any gut-related issue with oral supplementation based on the, the research I looked at, unless they have, you know, part of their ileum has been removed, et cetera, with some of the right. patients with inflammatory bowel disease. And there are even sublingual um, B12 forms that they can use. But we do have a subset of patients that just feel better when they get B12 shots. Totally. And it's, you know, it's hard to know. So I tell patients we can just do a trial if you want. Um, you don't really need it more than once a month. But if you get this huge energy boost, we could do a series a little bit closer together and then space it out. Um, but it's it's something that's worth trying in some patients with fatigue because I have had this subset of patients that just, it, it must be something different that I just don't fully understand why they're getting that benefit, but they are. And Maybe then, it's methylation related. Who knows? I And then also don't forget the... Um, atrophic gastritis or the pernicious totally. anemia patients, yep. those people are going to be very dependent on injections, dot, 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 because they literally cannot absorb it through the GI. Yep. Okay. So that's a little bit on nutrient deficiencies. Um, if we've done all of that and someone is still having fatigue, um, you know, there's some sort of one of our recent conferences, I liked how the, the presenter talked about like getting a two for one. So if you have someone who's depressed and has fatigue, well, you could use Wellbutrin and they might get, you know, an energy boost plus it could help their mood. So things like that, um, if they have fatigue and sleep apnea, of course, addressing the sleep apnea it, it can be huge in affecting their daytime energy Game levels. changer. Yep. yep. So, and then finally, you know, you've gone through all of that. You've kind of repleted nutrients, tried to rule out any other medication side effects, and you've kind of done your full lab workup, what else can you do when someone's just tired and you've kind of optimized whatever they can actually do for lifestyle and all of the other things we talked about? So in our world, we talk about adaptogens, mm -hmm. right? So botanicals that can kind of help 
help us adapt (laughs) to whatever we're dealing with, whether that's uh, whatever kind of cortisol pattern that is, whatever's going on with stress. So that can be helpful. I don't do a ton of testing with that. I tend to just try botanical adaptogens if I'm going to try it with patients. So let's just list them. My my list is uh, ashwagandha has great data, elithrococcus, Siberian ginseng, rhodiola. Uh, Those are what I use more licorice. Mm -hmm. Yep. I really like rhodiola. I use that a lot. Yeah, that's pretty much my list, too, and some of the combination products that have a couple of those in them. Um, And I also think, you know, from a herbalism perspective, there are also, you know, constellations of uh, patients that do well with, like, rhodiola versus versus, ashwagandha. Yeah, like the way I, I think I mentioned this on the podcast before, but the way I was taught to use rhodiola is rhodiola is a plant that thrives in the coldest, most, you know, acrid environment in Siberia. It's Siberian ginseng. And so if your life is a living hell, like you're in the stress of it, you're in the think of it, rhodiola is the plant that I would mm-hmm. use for that. Mm-hmm. Ashwagandha seems to be really good if you pulse it. Mm-hmm. You know, like a little bout of stress now, a little bout of stress later, you use it while you're in the stressful situation, and then you kind of pop off of it. Mm-hmm. I also really, it's not an herb, but L-theanine, I see help a lot, especially for those anxious, like, what's it, tired? Wired, wired but tired. Wired, but tired folks, because yeah. it just kind of... sound fun. No, no. Totally but it's definitely there. a constellation. Yeah, and it just brings it down so that they're yeah. not burning so hard throughout yeah. the day. Yeah, and that's that, for me, I'm like, okay, that's that anxiety patient and who can't turn it off. And it's green tea, so... Yeah. If yeah. you are going to have your caffeine, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> throw in some green tea. Um, and then we talk about mitochondrial support with... Dr. Gurevich, I feel like you enjoy this topic. I do. This is my Um, favorite topic. So I I want you to talk about how you are deciding when you might give someone an an adaptogen versus mitochondrial support. Mitochondrial support is expensive. So I'm generally going to start with adaptogens. Okay, let's say there was no cost issue. Oh, great, great. Okay. So let's just talk about mitochondria. Okay. So... um, Mitochondria is, as we know, the powerhouse of the cell. I've heard that before. Yeah, yeah. I will say (laughs) I do think that my guess is in the next five years, we are going to figure out that mitochondria is not one thing. It's like 14 different things because it, it seems like mitochondria... So we used to think, I'm going to back up a little bit. We used to think mitochondria was the battery pack of the cell. Now we actually think that mitochondria is the motherboard of the computer. It seems to, it seems to control. I haven't heard that word in a long time. No. <laughs> Bringing back computer yeah. lessons in high school. Uh, here, <laughs> welcome to the 1990s. <laughs> You're welcome. Uh, it is the, it controls hormone secretion. It controls redox reactions. It controls immunological systems. It controls ATP and energy production. Mm-hmm. It does a lot. And we are only starting to learn about it now. We also know that we can boost mitochondria by fasting. Fasting boosts mitochondria mm-hmm. by ketogenic diet because that's a form of fasting that boosts mitochondria and by actually supporting the nutrients that support mitochondria. So there was this really, really great study that I cite all the time that was done in... It was done with chronic fatigue and uh, MSCFA. What, what's it called? Uh, MECFS. MECFS patients. Same thing as chronic fatigue. But mm. also desert storm syndrome patients. So desert storm syndrome are these soldiers. I remember. I saw this study. It's Maybe you super sent it to int- me. Yeah, it's, it was like a 45-person study. So okay. it wasn't massive, but it was enough. Uh, and they, they took these chronic fatigue and desert storm patients, and they randomized them uh, to either receive nothing or receive this conglomeration of nutrients. It was like NADH, CoQ10 alpha lipoic acid, acetylocarnitine, like all of those things right. that we think that supports mitochondrial function. Right. And what we what was documented with that subset of patients that re- received the support is increased quality of life, increased uh, subjective feelings of energy, mm-hmm. and increased productivity. 
We also know that the place that has the most mitochondria in the whole body is the intestinal tract because that is probably the most active part of your body. Mm -hmm. Like even more active than your brain is your GI and digestive process. So sometimes if you spoon feed the body mitochondrial support in this conglomeration mm -hmm. of nutrients, you see a significant improvement in your energy. You interestingly will often also see a reduction in bloating. Mm. and a reduction in cool. brain fog. It's really, like, it's like... So it sounds like this is a much more sort of impactful intervention than an adaptogen most of the time, would when, you say? When would if you, it's the correct intervention. Yeah, which when you, you know decide by, to give it? I, honestly, it's not where I start. Yeah. And honestly, it's not where I start, mainly because of cost. Yeah. But you're looking for... Like, like, you know, these patients who have mitochondrial defects, first of all, uh, anybody on chemotherapy or really strong pharmaceuticals, most likely it's impacting their mitochondria. So that's a little bit of a no-brainer. Uh, anybody with neuropathies, where you're mm -hmm. seeing like long-standing neuropathies distally, yeah. then there's a potential that it's a mitochondrial issue. Mm -hmm. I also think about mitochondrial support for like gastroparesis patients, mm -hmm. for like where, where like motility is not working. Nervy stuff. Yeah. Yep. That's going to, I'm going to give them mitochondria, uh, chronic brain fog. Like I think about this, you know, the, the reason why I, it always starts, I think for all of us, it always starts with the patient. Like mm -hmm. you see a patient yeah. and I had this patient and I did everything for her. I mean, she, first of all, she worked with a really good naturopath before her. The naturopath is stalled out. So she sent her to me and then, you know, I treated her bacterial overgrowth and that didn't get us anywhere. And then I went after I did like a stool testing and I treated her biofilms mm -hmm. and that got us somewhere, but it didn't get us everywhere. And her big complaint was chronic bloating. And then I was like, you know, you complain about chronic bloating, plus you complain about fatigue. Mm -hmm. Like, she's like, you know, before I got sick, I could walk on the beach for hours, and now I have a push walker that I have to sit oh, after 10 minutes. Like, she was, like, yeah, stalling out of life. Yeah. And I, I had just listened to a podcast, you know, that's how I absorb my content, about mitochondria and what it does, and I was like, let's try this. Yeah. Let's try this. And we started, I, I require three months. It's a pricey intervention, but I don't yeah. want to give up on it right. until I've, yeah. it's been three months. Yep. And so I started her on it and she was like oh my god I like cook dinner for my whole family wow. I haven't done that in four years yeah. she's like me and my husband went for a walk on the beach and he was sitting and I was like no -uh, let's go <laughs> and my bloating improved by like 40 percent yeah and so then I started looking at like it's like it's like kind of like when Dr. Kapadia taught us about the allergy episode the allergy and IBS mm -hmm. it like changed my practice totally. for GI or, for GI yeah or like if when, they have fatigue and GI symptoms yes. I'm like, this is, this, I need to try this. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it seems like even if they have suboptimal absorption, like a lot of people, it's worth trying because we pack so much into these combo products that mm -hmm. if they're getting some of it and if it's working locally too, it sounds like it's just something to try if someone has fatigue in general and you've kind of exhausted all of the conventional and sort of botanical first trial options. Do you keep people on it or That's do you a, pulse it? I, so three months minimum. Yeah. Probably I'm going to go a year. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I'll start posting it as they need. Wow, a year continuous. Mm -hmm. uh, wow. Also, you know who else? Post-COVID. Long COVID. Totally. Also, uh, totally. uh, Lyme disease patients, uh, tick-borne illness patients. Athletes. Ep Epstein-Barr patients. Mm -hmm. I think that there's a couple of things going on. I think just nutritionally within our diet, it's really... It's hard to get. I mean, especially if you're eating like a regular standard yeah. American diet. Yeah. 
And who can really eat those amount of vegetables we're telling people to eat? I'm like, how many meals a day? I can't, <laughs> yeah. I can't get it all in. So who you're talking we're doing about? Two meals a day here. So who you're talking about in particular? Who started? I don't know if she started this research, but she definitely publicized this research. Right. Is Terry Walls, right. who studied uh, mitochondrial support for I can't MS. Can't do it. I, yeah. I would. She requires, uh, I think, three cups of greens yep. and eight cups three of vegetables. Oh my gosh. Three cups of cruciferous vegetables. I mean, yeah. probably all feel great if we could manage that. Or terribly bloated. But how do can you eat that count? much food? No, juices do That's not count. That's the quantity of food. I'm just what like... about uh, green powders? <laughs> they do not count. I will also say my experience with green powders is generally there's everything know. in there, oh, but not man. a lot of anything. They are having a time, though. All yeah. my patients are asking me about green powders, and they are making a killing. Yeah, that and, is the business And I in. keep on being like, there's nothing, there's not in, like, there's enough in here. There's enough ingredients. Know. God knows there's enough ingredients, but there's not actually enough nutrients in it. And also, most of them aren't organic, and it's, like, super condensed pesticides. Like, I just, ugh. Oh, and um, they're I, I agree. expensive. I agree with everything you're saying. Great ingredient list. Yeah. Great. It looks like it has great everything. Great label. Like, yeah. beautiful branding. Also, they have lots of marketing dollars. Yeah. Yep. I know, I know. So there's pea protein in it. So it's out for me and I just cross it (laughs) off my list. (laughs) Uh, So that is, so that is the mitochondrial deficiencies in the GI have kind of been a game changer. I might just put together a data set if I ever write this presentation, um, just about mitochondria in the GI, because when I pull data on it, when I was like thinking about writing a presentation, there's also data specifically about like chronic um, bloating, chronic IBS like symptoms that are being caused by mitochondrial deficiencies. I mean, yeah. Would so, you consider using it in like a gut recovery protocol? It's such a great question. Um, yes, I will say or I don't know. celiac recovery? I don't know if I would use it stock because there is also a subset of patients who do not tolerate it. Mm. Like I have this one particular family where I treat the dad, the mom, and the kids. Yeah. And fully grown kids. If I give them too high of a dose at the mitochondrial support product, they'll vomit. Huh. Yeah, I just, feel like weird. I've seen that actually. Now that you're mentioning that, I wonder which piece it is. I haven't seen that with the individual ingredients that we I use. never do individual ingredients because right. it's so much. But cheaper. in the past, we've done you know yeah. carnitine, coq10, yeah. this type of and, a thing. And those also are there are studies saying that's good for vomiting, cyclic. Vomiting oh yeah, syndrome. yeah, yeah. There are totally. <laughs> so what the heck is going on? Cyclic vomiting. That we need to add that to our list. Yeah. That is a great topic. I have plenty to say on that one. Yeah, that's a great. Well, topic. so back to mitochondrial support. It seems like it's worth trying. In fatigue, that's sort of recalcitrant to other interventions. Yes. Um, as well as concurrent fatigue and GI disorders, which is most of our patients and yep. most of the country. And I will say it is actually my first line therapy for long COVID, chronic Lyme, which I don't treat a lot. Uh, I usually put them on mitochondrial support and then punt. And then uh, like Epstein-Barr chronic viruses. That is actually my first line of defense for those people. Mm. And also recent chemotherapy use. That, that makes sense. And radiation. Yeah. Yep. Okay, great. And then I wanted to briefly talk about histamine. So I've had patients uh, the last, again, since we've been treating mast cell the last five, six years, they will feel like their fatigue is amazingly better if they've cut down on histamine foods, which again, I don't recommend so excessive diet. Do. Yeah. Oh my God. This it's so I, learned, hard to do. I don't ask people to do this outside of a couple, like if they're eating like a jar of kimchi a day or something. Um, but doesn't in it include chocolate? I don't and any I, I leftovers. I can't live without chocolate at this point. I know. So I don't can't chocolate, I caffeine, and why IPAs. would we? I mean, you're really taking it. Yeah, no. I I'm like, how do you get out of bed in the winter? <laughs> We're gonna leave you the baby, <laughs> but <laughs> the chocolate and the IPAs. I don't take people off those things, Rebecca. But some people come in saying they've taken themselves yeah, off. Yeah, they do feel better, and they feel like Very their true. fatigue is better. So it's a good it's a good tip for, tip off for us that addressing 
histamine in other ways may help their fatigue because it can cause, I mean, antihistamines can cause fatigue sometimes if you pick the wrong one for the, that patient, yeah. but just consuming excessive histamine, if the person isn't breaking it down correctly, mm-hmm. can make them tired. So um, that's just another little... And this, I think, is a really good like reminder of also the antihistamine drugs right. are also the problem with the histamine. did we do an histamine. episode on that? Okay, I can't remember. Did we do okay? Well, we'll either do one or maybe we'll refer back to one that we did. But there's lots of <laughs> interventions you can do, and not all of them will be sedating for each person. So a tip off if histamine's affecting them is if, if they get really sleepy after they eat. Uh, we had a friend that said that was a sign of a good meal, but I don't. I mean, you don't want to be falling asleep after every meal. <laughs> but that also could be a sign of <laughs> excessive carbohydrates, overgrowth. So exactly. just in addition to thinking of dysbiosis and food allergies and all the things, it could just be histamine, and it might not be that they're allergic to everything they're eating. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Very. So, tangentially related because the group of us were talking about this earlier is progesterone right um and a uh, relative deficiency of progesterone or estrogen excess which is a debated term here uh, i also see cause more fatigue in people to a histamine potential pathway potentially yeah interesting yeah Yeah, because that's the other thing. We didn't even talk about cycles, like hormonal cycles can affect your energy. We were going to come back to that. So I don't know if either of you wants to talk briefly about, we could, we might need a whole episode on that. Everybody's looking at Dr. Sand for a quick recap. (laughs) She happens to be a real Well, if you don't want to dive, we don't have to dive into that today. We could talk about the effects of, I mean, we have a lot to talk about with hormones and PCOS in our 25 part series coming in the fall. But just keep it on your minds that hormones and fatigue. They're related in some way. Okay. And then finally, just in our world, you know, frequently I refer patients for acupuncture, body work, nervous Mm -hmm. system work, which can have profound effects on fatigue. Again, if that's the right modality for them. So, you know, back, Alana, back what you were saying about um, people being overworked and like racing too hard throughout their day. That never happens. Yeah. It's so rare. (laughs) A spiel that I give folks, a, a lot of my patients is we have a very old hardware. Like our brains are old hardware and think of it as like way too many tabs open in your browser. When we have like every time we drive anywhere, we're listening mm-hmm. to a podcast. No one in particular here, <laughs> but um, me too. Um, but everything is constant input all the time. Mm-hmm. So being mindful of closing tabs throughout the day or just being in silence, looking out the window, like allowing space mm-hmm. in to just let your nervous system be a nervous system. Mm-hmm. And when we think about animals that we see, like 80% of their time is spent just staring mm-hmm. at something we were kind of designed to do something similar. You know? That is such a good reminder. How do you do that and 10 hours of work on the computer every day I don't, is the question. I don't, but I really <laughs> encourage others. I, so I was telling uh, everybody I was camping this weekend on, uh, and like, there's something about camping yeah. where, A, you don't have service, mm-hmm. you know, or, or it's, it's kind of not socially appropriate. At least I don't right. think it's socially appropriate to be on your phone. Totally. But you're like outdoors, in the shade, like for me, that's like my reset, yeah. and I Good come air. back so so better rested. Yeah, yeah. We should do that every weekend. That was awesome. We like that was a really good deep dive, and I think that took us lots of different places. I thought I kind of knew fatigue, but my differential is now like a lot bigger. So we started by talking about mood issues like depression, anxiety, which we know, but also ways to support it using adaptogenic herbs. We focus on different options. We talked about testing that we can do, B12, ferritin, how to optimize different treatment strategies, Mm -hmm. IV versus oral, methylmalonic acid. And then we jumped into mitochondria, which is like... That blew my mind. I mean, I guess I didn't know about the gut and the mitochondria, but I can't wait to start using that for folks. So cool. 
what else did we cover? Is that everything we covered in this episode? I think that's everything that you need to know about fatigue. And I like the shout out for the nervous system, <laughs> acupuncture, like, you know, body really work. You never know what's good. I guess you never know what's going to work for someone. So yep. if you've done all the standard things, it's a bit of trial and error, but try some mitochondrial support, refer them to someone who can do hands-on modalities. It's just, we've had amazing results with different things for different yeah. people. And sometimes you just never know what's going to work for someone. Totally. I agree. Shop around. Thanks guys. Bye. Thanks for joining us today. Stay tuned. We release episodes every two weeks. If you like this episode, please subscribe and don't forget to rate and review us to help spread the turd nerd word. Eee!